Just to let you know, this episode contains some discussion of sexual offending and use of the language around that. He uh, was a refugee initially from Somalia. His family fled a very savage civil war. They spent seven years in a refugee camp in Kenya and then they came to Australia when he was uh, 11 years old. And at the time when this story begins, he is in high school in November of 2006. Uh, there is a knock on the door. I'm James Milson, and this is The Rule Book. In this story, we're considering these crime documentary series and whatnot. Uh, I'm thinking of making a murderer of serial, of all of those that uh, preceded them. And we're going to think about, well, the way that they satisfy our fascination around crime, but how they affect crime. And you know what? At this point, let's just let it speak for itself for a little while at least. At the top there, you heard Julie Zago. She's a journalist here in Melbourne. And she'll pick the story back up where she left off with a knock, knock on, on the, the door. door. At 10 to 8 in the morning. And three detectives are on his doorstep. And they say, are you Farah Jama? And he says, yes. And they say, we'd like you to come down to the station and answer some questions for us regarding the alleged rape of a 48-year-old woman who was found unconscious in an over-28s nightclub. She had, didn't recall how she'd gone to the toilets, but she had entered the nightclub just 20 minutes earlier. And this is... Jeremy Gans, a professor at Melbourne Law School. Who will help out with the story. So she was taken off to the hospital, including to rape crisis, because no one knew what had happened to her. Uh, and the review of the medical examiner was she was probably okay. Um, she had some bruises, but they probably came from just being dragged out of the toilet by the people who rescued her. But that all changed when forensics from uh, the rape crisis kit, a uh, sample from her vagina, uh, contained a small amount of sperm. Uh, from which they were able to derive a DNA profile. And she hadn't had sex with anyone, so the simple message from that was that she'd been raped. Okay. Actually, let's leave that DNA evidence there just for the moment. Let's go back to Farajama's doorstep. So he gets in the police car and they drive towards the police station. And on the way there, they actually drive past this particular nightclub in Doncaster. Doncaster is a suburb in Melbourne's east. And one of the detectives says, Farah, that is the place where we believe this crime took place. And he said, I have never been to that place. I haven't even been to this suburb. They get to the police station. Uh, they show him a photograph of the alleged victim who was uh, unconscious um, at the time at the time when this offence was supposedly occurred. Uh, so she couldn't identify her attacker at all. And he looked at her and he said, I've never seen this woman in my life. And the police said, well, we believe that somebody had sexual intercourse with her without her consent. Do you know what we mean by sexual intercourse? And he goes, nah. And they explain it to him. And then he says, look, guys, um, I'll be serious uh, with you. Um, I'm, I'm a virgin. I haven't even had sex. 
and said, maybe you yous could, could do a test on me to prove that I'm a virgin. And they said, well, no, we're sorry. There is no such test we can perform on an adult male. So the evidence against Farajama, I'm going to read a quote to summarize it. I'm not going to tell you where I'm quoting from just yet, but you'll find out later. The case against Mr. Jama had been mounted and pursued on the basis of a single piece of evidence, namely the presence on a slide and a swab collected in the course of a forensic medical examination of DNA that could, in the opinion of scientists, to an extraordinarily high mathematical probability be attributed to Mr. Jama. But that was it. There were no fingerprints of his on the scene. His, uh, there were no telephone records, no phone records suggesting he'd been in the area. His image did not appear on the security cameras from the venue that night. And there were some gaps in that coverage, but they were on for most of the night. And critically, the police could not come up with a witness, not one witness who could testify to having seen a young black teenager at his over 28s nightclub on this particular night, and you'd think he'd stand out. So no person claimed to see Farajama at the nightclub. No camera caught him there. There was nothing to suggest that he was there apart from this DNA evidence. And so I guess this is the point at which I'm thinking, what? And I guess in circumstances like that, you go to trial. In the county court trial, he was represented by a barrister, Ian Crisp, and uh, and a law firm, uh, experienced experienced and experienced criminal barrister. And I know because I'm watching you that the podcast is going out to people in countries where there is no such thing as barristers. A barrister just really means a lawyer who whose expertise is going to court. So the police had one piece of evidence, a piece of evidence that at the trial the prosecutor described as rock solid. Those were his words. And that was Jarma's DNA. So in the course of... About five days. There was a jury selected. The prosecutors uh, showed the jury this DNA evidence. It obviously would have been a forensic scientist coming into the room and, uh, and explaining it to them. And then it was Farajama's turn. And he turned to his family. They had an alibi for this particular night. Their alibi was that Jama couldn't possibly have carried out this rape in the nightclub because on the night in question, the family was gathered around the father's bed, he was dying, they were reading him his last rites, they were reciting the Quran all night long. The only evidence they could have, they had that anything was up that night was a $12 chemist receipt from down the road. There was no evidence that there was any doctor on the scene. Uh, you had uh, Jama's father giving evidence at the trial, very much alive as it happens. Um, they, you had his best friend and you had his brother and his brother was saying well yes we remember this night so well you know the night before 
Dad was okay, and by the next morning, well, he was much better. But on this particular night, yes, we remember it. We were sure he was dying. This came across as, I reckon, really overwrought and dubious to a jury. And, okay, obviously we're not making light of um, the family's alibi evidence. It's not really the point. Despite the evidence, though, and whether or not the jury might have thought that it was believable, whatever, I can't help but think, well, surely they also will have been thinking, how can it be that there's just DNA evidence? Surely if someone's left some DNA on their victim, they will have left something else. You know, I've seen crime TV shows, some sort of fibre, something. For him to have carried out this rape, he would have had to, say, spike the ladies' drink uh, in the nightclub. Uh, She was found in the toilets. So dragging her to the toilets um, in a place where there was evidence that there was about 600 to 800 people in the club that night. Raping her in the toilet. Uh, Her jeans were up. She was found with her jeans up at the top button. Um, undone and her zip down so raping her and sort of half dressing her up afterwards and leaping over the wall of the locked cubicle again because that's how she was found and disappearing into the night without anyone being seen anything We are tiptoeing towards the story that I alluded to earlier in this podcast. And that's about juries and the way that they see crimes, the way that they think, and these external factors that might impact upon that. And shouldering this serious responsibility of deciding Farajama's fate with just this DNA evidence to do it, this jury started asking questions. Yeah, I'm more upbeat than you about the value of things like serial and making a murderer, although I think each one has to be assessed on its own merits and they're all a little different. But um, you know, not, not for access to justice, but for um, understanding access to justice, if that makes sense. Um, um, uh, so it's not, not giving people justice, but it gives them a better window on the justice system than they otherwise have. Again, that's Professor Jeremy Gans. He was interviewed recently, and in the interview, he talked about the making a murderer effect. And to understand what he means by that, we have to go back a little further and look at something that was the talk of the legal town a few years back. People were calling it the CSI effect. It's called the CSI effect. Science, at least on television, never fails. Much of that evidence is built on foundations of sand. A recent string of high television appeals is complex and maddeningly inconclusive. It's early days. Us, I think we're at a point where we can talk about a trend uh, of long, detailed uh, looks at particular cases, typically from the viewpoint of there's been a miscarriage of justice here, but not always, um, accompanied by the social media style response of everyone then engaging with the case, uh, the case continuing after the documentary ends and people uh, weighing in one side or the other and continuing to be interested, and in the case of both potential proceedings happening afterwards. Uh, So I think that's actually a really different way of engaging with the criminal justice system from the past where your main window to criminal justice was 
a newspaper crime reporter who would attend the case and actually sit there in court, uh, but then write a relatively brief article and one which you can't check. Uh, so you're left with their take on the system. Uh, and worse still, because they are in a regular beat of crime reporting, they have to maintain relationships with the court, with lawyers, with police, with prosecutors, with other journalists, which means that they are dependent on sources uh, and they will not speculate in certain ways that might annoy a source. Uh, and ultimately, they won't push these things as far as someone who is just doing this as a one-off would do. Uh, and so the window we got was mediated through traditional media. And these documentaries are a shift towards non-traditional media, obviously still through things like Netflix and National Public Radio, but because of the social media aspect, uh, because of the formats, because of the time they have, because we're listening to it by streaming, not, not according to a published broadcast timetable, we uh, can engage with it in much greater depth and people can choose how much they engage with it. So that is really just by way of background. It's just occurred to me that there's some assumed knowledge here. I've assumed that you've got uh, Netflix and that you've watched Making a Murderer or that you're one of the millions of people who listened to Serial obsessively in its first season. So just quickly, they're both really covering the territory of uh, wrongful convictions, uh, revisiting police investigations, uh, looking at possibilities of corruption, all of that sort of stuff. Now, arriving at the point uh, I was attempting to travel to, the CSI effect, to explain, just remembering Julie gives a really great explanation. Here's that. Essentially, this idea that juries have become so habituated to these procedural cop shows where Crimes are always solved within the space of an hour, always using this whiz-bang forensic science and that they've come to, see, come to see that kind of evidence as infallible. So we're sitting in a jury box. Uh, it's in the, the day when CSI was popular or still being made or both. Um, maybe it's still popular and it's being made. I'm not sure. Anyway... We hear from this forensic scientist who talks about DNA and talks about probabilities in the millions and we actually don't understand it that much. He talks maybe about fingerprints or, or blood spatter, you know, it, stuff that sounds amazing and that we've seen in CSI as well. And we hear it and we just say, guilty, definitely guilty. This is seriously impressive. You know, that's the idea of the CSI effect anyway, in a fairly dramatised way. Hina Pasha, one of the lawyers for Farajama, can feel some empathy with jurors suffering under this CSI effect. You struggle with that, even as lawyers, you kind of struggle with that concept that DNA could be wrong. Because, like you say, you've got, you know, forensic programs and dramas and serials on television and movies where... If anyone says DNA, oh, well, you know, it's guilty. And that's the end of the story. You use words like, you know, forensic and, and, and all these kind of words where I think we're somehow, you know, mind controlled to some extent by media and, and um, uh, TV shows where we just take these things as being gospel. And when I talk about this and when I hear Hina talking about it, it actually doesn't sit well because 
it's kind of hard to imagine, like you and I and Jeremy and Hina and Julie, we're potential jurors. Are we going to be so dazzled by a forensic scientist? Are our brains sort of um, that plastic? I don't know that that's really the case. And that's probably where we're heading with this story. Farajama's jury didn't just take it lying down. They didn't just uh, allow themselves to be dazzled by forensic evidence. They asked questions. And that's what Jeremy's getting at with this making a murder effect that maybe, assuming that there was such a thing as a CSI effect once, maybe it's turned around. I think that the jury, in this case, was a very inquisitive jury. So they asked a lot of questions. But this was, as I said, presented to them on the part of the prosecution as rock solid. You know, they were given no real reason to question that DNA evidence. Uh, even the, the defence conceded that there was no question of contamination here. So the defence was trying to poke holes um, in the methodology and in the science in various ways. Highly technical stuff. I couldn't understand it. I, I, don't, I wouldn't be surprised if a jury didn't understand it. So back in the jury box at Farajama's trial, his jury heard this DNA evidence, they asked questions anyway, and presumably they're all people who have read newspaper articles about DNA cock-ups. They've, uh, th- they might have seen documentaries before. It doesn't matter that this was before Serial and Making a Murderer. It was well after In the Name of the Father and The Thin Blue Line. And even locally in Victoria, they probably would have known that. There have been problems with DNA evidence before. So there have been other cases of contamination, the police laboratory, um, in the evidence gathering process. And it's been embarrassing in Victoria on several occasions. The wrong people have been charged. My apparent message of these documentaries so far is that if you put any case under scrutiny, People are generally shocked that it was a pretty... It wasn't a foolproof system. Uh, there's lots of room for favour in these cases. So I guess it's like with the rise of this wrongful conviction media coverage, there's the promotion of scepticism. It's a widespread known phenomenon, then people might start to get more sceptical about the criminal justice system. And there you've got to put a caveat. That, that scepticism might not be accurate. Uh, we don't know really what the phenomenon is like out there, whether these cases are aberrations, how bad it is, whether you can generalise from those cases to current US cases, whether you can generalise from US cases to Australian cases. There's lots of reason to doubt you can do those generalisations. So I think that we can see how it's good that people are talking about the justice system, people are having some access to the justice system, but a couple of risks. One, sometimes it's made up. If it's fictional, sometimes it's a documentarian's version of something. It's it, it, it could have bias, it could miss things. The other risk that I can see straight off the bat is social media. You can say whatever you want. As far as I can tell, nothing's inadmissible on social media. So there's no one controlling who says what and whether uh, what they're saying really has any bearing on the truth. In the case of making a murderer... After I finished listening to it, I avoided spoilers like you should. But after I finished listening to it, I was immediately Googling. And my point of Googling was to find out what the reactions of other people in the story who didn't have their story told was. 
and then made my own judgment about whether I trusted the documentaries take at the end of the day based on that. Okay, let's bring Farajama's case back into the foreground. We're at the trial. During the trial, there there was a point at which the jury asked a question. And the judge even joked about it in their absence. He joked with the other barristers and said, ah, the inevitable question has been asked. It's a question that I refer to as the kind of elephant in the room, the question that hung over the whole case, really. And that was, how did the police get Jarma's DNA in the first place? We're going to leave it there for now. Next episode of The Rule Book will conclude this story. And... As you can imagine, there will be many questions answered and knowing the way that this has gone so far, many more asked. So, a couple of weeks. See you then. Thank you for listening to The Rule Book. This episode was produced by me, James Milsom, music uh, by me also. Clips from a bunch of different places. Sources were Anderson Cooper 360, Twin Cities PBS, KTVL News 10, the National Forensic Science and Technology Centre in the States, Making a Murderer, Interviews from this episode included Julie Zago, journalist whose book The Tainted Trial of Farajama gives a compelling and far more detailed account of this case, Professor Jeremy Gans from the Melbourne Law School and Hina Pasha, lawyer. Find out more about The Rule Book at therulebook.xyz, tweet at rulebookpodcast. Uh, find us on Facebook as well and that's probably all Trixie Studio 